Uh, welcome, everybody. Good to see you today. Actually, thank you for coming. Um, I would especially invite you to turn to the fifth page of the of the note packet. I mean, if you don't have it, that's fine, but you might want to make note. Because I want, I want you to see um, how I organized this um, material. We're in Chapter 3 through most of Chapter 4, and it is in this uh, segment, these basically two chapters, that God is singling Moses out to be the deliverer, uh, to be the one who will uh, lead the emancipation of the Israelites from Egypt, and then also who will lead them into uh, the Arabian Peninsula to Sinai, where we'll receive the law, and then lead them, uh, at first unexpectedly, that it would take that long, but 40 additional years, actually 38 additional years, of wandering uh, because of their disobedience. And as you know from what we have talked about so far, at least I hope you can remember those two categories, Moses spent the first 40 years of his life Uh, In the court of Pharaoh, I believe it was Hatshepsut who had adopted him, (coughs) but nonetheless, (coughs) excuse me, he was trained in the best, absolutely, unequivocally, the best schools the ancient world would have offered. Then he kills that Egyptian overlord, and uh, through Tmosis III, whom I think is the Pharaoh at that time, sees Moses as a threat and seeks to execute him. And he runs, and he goes to Midian, where he spends another 40 years. And so you have 40 years plus 40 years. You have 80 years of preparation um, for what he's about to do. Now, what we see here, so it's just a summary of what we've done. What we see here, and that's how I've organized it, are five arguments. Again, I'm looking at the way I put the outline together on page five. Five arguments Moses gives God as to why he's making a mistake. I'm not the right man. And he does it in several ways. And so what I've done is um, organize it around a series of questions. And the first argument, which we will review, we covered that last week, just started to touch it, it's really the question, who am I? Who am I that you would choose me? And then in verse 13 through 22 is, okay, God, who are you? And so there's this review, and we, we will spend quite a bit of time on that here in just a minute. The Yahweh, the I am who I am, or I am that I am, or I am a discourse, which is quite powerful and very theological, uh, as, you, as you will see. Then the third question that he uh, poses to God, which, uh, which in effect is an argument against it, what sign do I have that I am the deliverer? <clears throat> Prove it. And then the fourth one is, uh, that's verses 1 through 9 of chapter 4. And the fourth one is, what can I say? What do you want me to say? Verses 10 through 12 of chapter 4. And then the final clincher, verse 13 through 17, is send someone else. So what we have here, it's very clearly organized in the text. So we'll go over each one here in a minute. I just wanted you to get the overview the chapter four, three and four, in effect, <coughs> constitute a dialogue between God and Moses. And Moses is offering the reasons, in effect, why I'm the wrong guy. So the first question is, who am I? And we saw that uh, last week. Let's just review it again real quickly in verse 11 and 12. But Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Who am I? I'm just a kind of a guy that was running from Pharaoh for 40 years, and I'm on the backside of a desert, and you're telling me all these things? And God's response in verse 12 is the same response he says to many others he calls, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Gideon, and others. I will be with you. Who am I that you sit to me? I will be with you, Moses. And in a very real sense, that should be sufficient. But rarely is it. 
God has to do more. But M- Moses hears what God <coughs> is saying to him, and it's absolutely true, and it's absolutely certain. I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is you, it is I who sent you. When you brought the people of Egypt, uh, people out of Egypt, you will worship me on this mountain. So and remember, I hope you can remember this from last week, the geography of this, Moses is at Horeb. He has crossed from Midian, he's crossed the Dead Sea, and he's, I'm sorry, the uh, Sea of Arabah. He's, he's down in the very southern tip of Arabia, which will also be known as Mount Sinai. So this, this mountain, where he has seen the burning bush, and he's beginning this dialogue, if you will, with God, is uh, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. <clears throat> and God says, you're going to come out of Egypt, you're going to lead the Israelites out, and you're going to worship me at this mountain. And later he will hear from God, that's where I'm going to give you the law. My civil, ceremonial, and moral law. Okay, that's the first question. And God's response. Got it? David, who's this friend with you? This is Dave Carey. Hi. You got work for me? Very good. Welcome. Jim. Good to have good you. Good to see you. Pleasure to meet you. Welcome. Welcome. I'll take your business card at the end and I'll <coughs> put you on our mailing list. Excellent. Okay. Now, the second part of the dialogue revolves around the question, who are you? <coughs> now, it's not that Moses doesn't know who he is, but it's really a question, how should I explain this to the people of Egypt, uh, the people of Israel? How, how should I explain this to the leaders? So Moses said to God, verse 13 now, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, then God, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what's his name? Then what shall I say to them? Now that has always created some curiosity. Um, The elders, the leaders, the tribal and clan leaders of Israel didn't know who God was, didn't know his name. I don't think that's the point. Every time God is introduced to the the leaders of Israel, he's always introduced, this should not be new to you, but just a review, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And the patriarchs, which Abraham, Isaac, and the patriarchs, it's identifying with the patriarchs mean, I'm the one who made this covenant promise. And I'm the one who's going to keep this covenant promise. The sense is that Moses was expecting God to respond in that way. You remind them. Who am I? You remind them. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is not how God responds. God responds in a different way. And he responds with a name that is very if, if I say revelatory, do you know what I mean? It's revelatory in the sense that it is revealing deeper theological truth as to who he is. So let's put it another way. If I could paraphrase all this, you tell them that I'm not only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am who I am. You tell them I am has sent you. Verse 15, God said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord. Now, Lord there in your translation, no matter what translation you have, should be in capitals. It should be capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It is all, I think always, in all translations, that's how it's translated, in capitals. Mm -hmm. Because I don't have a board here. But if I did, I would write these four letters on the board. Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. Because remember, Hebrew does, is a written language that has no vowels. There are no written vowels. It's a, it's a language of consonants. Those vowels would be added much, much, much later in writing simply to make it easier for he, people who know Hebrew to, to write it. Now, I'm, I'm telling you more than you need to know or that you're probably even interested in. But it's telling us something. The title for God, Yahweh, Lord in caps, is tied to, because in my Bible, this is what I did, tied to I am, 
and I am who I am in verse 14. Do you understand what I mean? Yahweh, I am, I am who I am are all tied together. They all have exactly the same consonant. Do you understand that sentence? They all have exactly the same consonant. <coughs> so this is a revelatory name. It's a, and it's not a new name. It's in chapter one of Genesis. Uh, sorry, chapter two of Genesis, and all over the place. It's just saying something to us, as God says, "I am who I am," or "Am that I am." It's saying that I am the self-sufficient. Self-existent God. Now, do you understand those two modifiers? Self-sufficient. I don't need anyone. I am totally self-sufficient and self-existent. I didn't come into existence. I am eternal. I'm not. I'm not a caused being. I have always just existed. So, how would you describe God in terms of time? I was, well, that's not sufficient. I will be, well, that's not sufficient. I am. And so it, it's, it becomes, it meaning Yahweh and I am, <coughs> become one of the central titles throughout the Bible of God. And as we briefly mentioned last week, then you need to connect that I am, you need to connect that with the Gospel of John particularly, where Jesus over and over and over again says, I am. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And then my favorite passage is John eight fifty eight in the debate with the Pharisees. When they question who he is, and, he, and Jesus says to them, you know, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Remember, Abraham's the patriarch, covenant receiver from God, founder of the Hebrew people. And they say, Abraham's seen your day. You're not yet 40 years old and you've seen Abraham? And that Christ's response is this in verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. And I'm telling you, every single Pharisee who heard him say that thought of Exodus 3.14. Every single one of them would have thought of that. Because we know that's true because the very next verse, verse 49, what do they do? They pick up stones to kill him. They understand what he's claiming. He's claiming to be Yahweh. And if he is not Yahweh, then he's blaspheming. And blasphemy in the law is a capital offense. So, I mean, they are outraged by that. Of course, they don't embrace it. They don't accept it. They don't believe it. And the, the, the importance of that verse, among many, many other in the Gospel of John, is to connect us to this passage right here. Let me do one more thought. I don't know how familiar you are with the Jehovah's Witness group, but <coughs> they come into our neighborhoods and knock on our doors and offer us a magazine called Design Watchtower. But that organization denies the deity of Christ. They are not Christ's witnesses. They are Jehovah's witnesses, Yahweh's witnesses. They argue that Jesus is a created being. They argue that there was a time when Jesus didn't exist. So Jesus is not I am. So what I have done, now they don't come to my door anymore. They must put. They must keep notes. Don't go to seven seven four. My address. Don't go there. But for many years they did, and I, I always had the classic. One time I was so arrogant it was awful. I feel ashamed of myself. There were two ladies. As you know, they used to come in pairs, and the one lady it seemed that she was training the other one. I'm not sure. She was a little bit older. The other one was a little bit younger. And the younger one was on the front, and the other lady was right back of her. And the one younger lady had these little stick'em notes all over her Bible, trying to, you know, I guess remember where I'm supposed to turn. And she was telling me something. She says, and the original Greek says, I said, oh, you know Greek. Isn't that awful of me to do that? <laughs> yeah. So I said, pardon me, just a minute. So I went into my house, because uh, I never let people who are leaders of false teaching into my house. Third John chapter 9, verse 9 says, never let unbelievers... Never let false teachers into your house. So I don't, anyway, 
it was a it was a summer day, and I said I'll be right back. So I went into my room where I keep my stuff, pulled out my Greek New Testament. Wasn't that awful? I was I'm so embarrassed. I brought it out, and I said, okay, you know Greek. I said, I'm just interested. I said, I've, I've been to graduate school and so on. I've had some Greek. I said, I would invite you to turn to Exod- uh, to John 8, 58 with me. I'll turn to it in Greek. You can turn to it. In your, and she did. And I said, okay, would you read that? And this is awful, what I'm doing. I'm trying, you know, just terrible. But I... And she said, before Abraham was, I am. I said, good. Now, turn to Exodus 3.14 then and read that. She read it. I said, okay, this is what I want you to do. Explain to me why Jesus is not claiming to be Yahweh. And she couldn't answer that question. And the older lady said, well, we need to go. Thank you. I mean, and please, don't, please don't regard that as a self-elevating comment. All I'm saying is we have to be prepared to respond to somebody like that. Because they're saying Jesus is a created being. He's not the eternal Yahweh of the Bible. I just showed her that's an in that is incapable of holding to that if you believe the Bible. Because John 8, 58 and Exodus 3, 14, you put them together. It is crystal clear what Jesus is claiming. I mean, there's no ambiguity there. And the next verse, verse 49 of John 8, helps you to see that the Pharisees really understood what he was saying because they seek to kill him. So I'm saying all that to you, and, and that's I got down a little bit of bunny, bunny trail, but in the second objection that Moses is raising, the Lord's response is profoundly theological, and it is deeply important for us in understanding the rest of the Scriptures. So that God is saying to Moses, don't only tell them, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Tell them, I am. I'm the self-sufficient, self-existent, great I am of the universe. And so that becomes, it becomes a profoundly theological response, but it also built, it will have the intended consequence of building confidence in, in Moses. Uh, what, Jim, would you say is the current uh, correlation of that today? Um, <clears throat> New Testament believers... Uh, as we sit here, uh, what would you say is a parallel to that today? Uh, as maybe God not talking to us, perhaps He is though directly, and maybe in depending on how you consider the um, uh, you know Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how how would that apply today? If we're encouraged to witness in our lives, in casual conversation maybe, day in and day out with other third parties? Well, uh, I, I'm hearing all your words. I'm not sure the exact intent of your question there, but um, I think it is important for us to be always and, and Peter actually says that in his epistle, 1 Peter 2.14, always be ready to give an account, an apologetic, for the hope that's in you. In, in other words, um, th- this is one of the reasons why I think this passage is so important. Our belief as a Christian, our convictions as a Christian, are not rooted in what someone has said or what someone has taught. They're rooted in what God has revealed. And for you and me, our faith is not just feeling. It's just not about feel-goodism. It is about a set of clear propositions revealed in Scripture about who God is, about who I am, and who's bridged the gap between us. Of course, the answer is Jesus. And that's the heart of the gospel. My, my great, that's why I do classes like this. I have four of these each week. The reason I do classes like this is if people want to come, I want them to be exposed to the depths of Scripture. I am, I am very frustrated with how many leaders in many churches are just feeding their people pablum 
They're just giving them the most shallow, superficial stuff. And so they really don't understand what it means to be a Christian. They really don't understand the doctrinal foundations of their faith. And so the, the, the result then is we're just, we're producing a bunch of shallow, superficial, milquetoast Christians who don't really know what they believe and couldn't defend it if their lives depended on it. You men are no longer a part of that group. You do know to that, don't you? <laughs> so what I mean, I'm saying to you, this is really important stuff. This is really important. God reveals this. He has preserved it. And uh, you know that case, as I often say to people who are skeptical, all I'm asking you to do is read the scriptures and test the claims of the word, word of God. Test those claims. You know, it isn't, it isn't a vacuous, empty. It is a solid, uh, consistent, amazing, supernatural book. Just test it. It's going to take some time. You're going to have to be open. You're going to have to be intellectually honest. But if you're open, God will absolutely clarify in your mind and in your heart who he is, what he's doing, and how he's bridged the gap between you and him through Christ. I don't know if that's what you're looking for, but that's my answer to what you were saying. <coughs> Rob, I think you had your hand up. I did, but I think you've answered it. I, I'm, what you just said is so profound. It opened <coughs> so many dives. My question was, are you talking about the church leaders, the ordained clergy, or their congregation? I, I don't know how it can be, how it can not be both. Well, I think it is both, but... Uh, Rob, the Bible is very clear. Leaders are always called to a higher standard. They're the leaders of our churches and everything else, but they're the ones, they have a very, very important responsibility before God in what they are supposed to be doing, among other things. And if they choose not to do that for whatever reasons, their accountability is to God. Someday they're going to have to give an answer to what they've done in their responsibility as a pastor or leader or whatever it is. Let's continue then. Please notice, uh, again, we're right in the middle of verse 15. The God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. And so you, you have the Lord not only again reaffirming he's not only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's Yahweh, this is my name forever. I mean, this is my eternal name. It was in Genesis 2. It's here. Every generation needs to understand who I am. And that, again, is why I think it is so important as Jesus reveals who he is, and it's most comprehensively covered in the Gospel of John, that he is the I am of the Bible. And that gets then to the nature of the Trinity, one essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. So it's just a, it's, it's just, it's just a very, very important theological passage. It's answering the question that Moses asked. Okay, now, okay, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you got, but is that all I say? No, 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 no. You tell them I am. So let me quickly read this next uh, section. It's just closing out chapter 3. That God says, Go assemble the elders of Israel, say to them, Yahweh, the God of your father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me. Notice now he's putting them together. Not only the covenant name, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but Yahweh. I have watched over you and have seen what's been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised to bring you out of your misery into Egypt, into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, a <coughs> land flowing with milk and honey. <coughs> to whom did God make that promise first? Abraham. So all he is doing as God is revealing again to Moses what I want you to say is just revealing the covenant. This isn't new truth. This isn't the first time you see this, and this isn't the first time they heard this. 
But what he's doing is he's connecting Yahweh and all that that means as a title of God with his covenant name, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's saying is who's going to bring you? Who's going to do all this? It's Yahweh, the great I am, self-sufficient, self-existent God. And then verse 18, the elders of Israel will listen to you. And you and the elders who are going to go to the king of Egypt and say, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met us. Let us take a three-day journey into wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch, this is God speaking, so I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders. That is a very important word, by the way. NIV is translating that word wonders with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. So what's God doing? In a short synoptic summary, hey, Moses, it's going to be kind of tough because he's not going to willingly let you go. But I'm going to have to demonstrate my power. And when I demonstrate my power, he will let you go. And notice, it's not over. Verse 21. And I will make the Egyptian favorably disposed toward this people, so that when they... When you leave, you will not go out empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and every woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you put on your sons and daughters, and you will plunder the Egyptians. When we get to this passage, it's about chapter 10, 11, all that, God will make it very clear. You are being paid for 430 years of slavery. In other words, what God is saying here, ultimately, I will see that you were paid for those years of slavery. So <clears throat> what God is doing, I hope you didn't miss this, when Moses asked, all right, whom do I say sent me here? Okay, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is that it? Is that going to be enough? No, 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 no. And he ties his self-existence and self-sufficiency as Yahweh to what he's going to do. And he's not only going to bring them out, he is going to perform massively significant miracles, wonders is how the NIV translates it, to prove who's the all-powerful God. It's not Ra. It's not Amun-Ra. It's not Osiris. It's not Horus. They're all the gods of Egypt. It's Yahweh. And you will hear me say this when we get to chapter 7. God will dismantle the entire Egyptian worldview. He will dismantle it and show its inefficiencies and stupidity and silliness. And in addition, he'll do one more thing. He will see that the children of Israel are paid for their 400 years of, 430 years of slavery. So God's just amazingly summarized to Moses what he's about to do. Now, you would think, knowing that you are all spiritually mature men, always ready to do what God wants you to do, you would think that Moses would respond just like you would. Okay, Lord, now I'm ready. He's not ready. He has three more excuses. Why is that? You, we, 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 you know, many times read this story, and he's just adamant about just, I'm not the guy. And he just doesn't take the first one. Like, let's admit, like, if, any, if anybody here in the room is like, I'd be like, okay, great. Especially, you know, <laughs> Personally, you know, but he just kept arguing about it. <laughs> you know, I've thought a lot about that, Dave, and I kind of think I probably would have been like Moses. Here I am, Lord, send Joel. <clears throat> <laughs> and it's just, it, it's, it could perhaps be remembering he lived in the Egyptian court for 40 years. He saw the power and majesty of the Egyptian court. I don't know, Lord. I don't think I want to go back. I certainly don't want to go into Pharaoh and tell him, you got to let these people go. I, I mean, Lord, I, I understand. I accept who you are, but please send Joel. I am not the one to go. I don't know about you guys, but I can identify quite a few times in my life. Now, I'm the oldest man in the room. I'm almost 70. But, um, what? 
<laughs> but Jim, you're supposed to tell the truth in this class. Yeah. <laughs> well, those then in this room are over seven. I just paid you a comment, a compliment. Shut up! Don't let anybody know you're older than that. <laughs> but I, <clears throat> but there were a number of times where I did. I did, when God was clearly revealing to me what he wanted me to do, I pushed back and said, no, I don't want to do it. I, I just, I don't want to do it, Lord. Well, we can't do it. No, right? well, yeah. And that's what God is, God is just showing. Number one, I'll go with you, Moses. That's the very first thing. The second thing, I'm not only the God of Abraham, I'm Yahweh. And because of who I am, this is what I'm going to do. So now you would just say, okay, I'll thank you. And as Dave just said, now I got it. But notice that's not it. So the third question, if you will, or the third objection or the, is what sign is the Lord? What, you know, we always look for signs. We've got to have some confirmatory. So Moses said, what if they do not believe me? I'm in verse 1 of chapter 4. Or listen to me or say, the Lord did not appear to you. I mean, can't you hear people saying that? Okay, Moses, you made this up. That didn't really happen. Then the Lord said, it's like Moses is saying, Lord, me just saying these things isn't going to be enough. Me just saying, I'm here to deliver you from Egypt. And for me to say, Yahweh sent me, and this is what he's going to do. Lord, I don't think that's going to be enough. I, I don't think that's going to be enough to convince them, Lord. Just because you told me to say that you told me, and it, when you start thinking at that level, that's probably right. Because anybody can just say something. So God now shares with him, Moses, I understand your reservations, but there are three signs. Three signs that will confirm that what I told you to say is true. Look at them. And then the Lord said to him, that's Yahweh saying to Moses, what is that in your hand? And he said a staff. Now remember, Moses is a shepherd at this point in his life. He's caring for Jethro's flocks, remember? And those flocks had gone across the, 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 the sea there, and he's now at Horeb. And so that's very common. Staff, got it. That's a staff, right. The Lord said, throw it to the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake. Now, let's not gloss over that too quickly. All of you, well, maybe not all of you, but most of you have seen Cecil B. DeMille's classic, The Ten Commandments. And you all, when I get to heaven, and if Moses doesn't look like Charlton Heston, I'm going to be really disappointed. Because <laughs> every time I read Moses, I always has this mind picture of Charlton Heston. I mean, it just this is the way it is. I grew up with that. That was my son's favorite movie when he was a little kid. I, well, I don't know how many times I watched it. him. And you can just picture Moses taking this staff and throwing it on the ground and becoming a serpent snake. But remember something. In ancient Egypt, the snake was the symbol of life and death. The snake is everywhere in Egyptian mythology and symbolism. And so it isn't just, wow, that's neat to take a, take a staff and it becomes a snake. That's really a cool thing to do. No, it's much deeper and symbolically much, much more powerful. Not only is there an innate kind of intuitive response of fear when you're around a snake. I don't know how you guys are, but I'm out in the summer gardening or mowing or cutting things or whatever, and a garter snake will come out. Now, that scares me. It probably doesn't you guys at all. You probably just say, oh, there's a snake. But, I mean, it just scares me. It just, you know, it's just a shock. And if I happen to have my edger with him, that <laughs> snake's 
Anyway, so it's just it's but it's it's more than that because Moses spent forty years in Egypt. He understands how important that is symbolically, and so he ran for it. In verse four, then the Lord said, "Reach out your hand and take it by the tail." I wouldn't ever do that, but he did. And so Moses reached, took hold of the snake, and it turned back into the staff in his hand. This, says Yahweh, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, God of Jacob, has appeared to you. So Moses, I'm giving you a confirmatory sign. Now listen, God never does a miracle to show off. Every miracle God affects, E-F-F-E-C-T, every God miracle God affects has a purpose to it. It's a didactic, you know what didactic means? A teaching, it's communicating truth. Every miracle Jesus Christ did in his three years of public ministry wasn't just to show off. Every miracle had a purpose to it. It was to confirm something that he was teaching. It was to confirm and demonstrate who he is. So God isn't just giving, excuse me, giving Moses here the authority to do some dog and pony show. This is to demonstrate that Yahweh is with Moses that Yahweh is empowering Moses, and that Yahweh is more powerful than everything associated with ancient Egypt. You are my man, Moses, and I will give you the resources you need to do what I'm asking you to do. And already you know in the coming chapters, this staff of Moses is going to be used in multiple ways to demonstrate the power and authority of God. All right? A second sign, verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 6. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand in his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It's a very difficult word to translate, but some kind of a disease, skin disease, so we translate leper. Anyway, and it became as white as snow. Verse 7, now put it back into your cloak. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak. When he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Now this is a confirmatory miracle for Moses personally. I touched your body. And I have the power and the authority to make your body diseased. Also have the power and authority to instantly heal it. Not showing off, not doing anything with the dog and pony. It's just Moses. I just want you to understand again who I am, who it is that's promising to go with you, who it is that's the great I am, who it is that's empowering you. I just want you to understand the level of my authority. Then, lastly, the last sign, the third and final sign, verse eight. Then the Lord said, "If you do not believe me." I'm sorry, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe those two signs or listen to them, you take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. So Moses, you can do the leprous thing. But if they still don't believe you, this is the final one. Now again, Let's think about what the Nile was, how the people of Egypt and therefore the the Israelites, because they would have benefited from the Nile. The Nile was Egypt. Ancient Egypt, everything was the Nile. In the Egyptian theology, mythology, if you will, the Nile was the bloodstream of the god Osiris. The Nile was the vital center of everything in Egypt. It was, of course, the source of of all the nutrients for their crops because lush, lush farms on either side of the Nile. 
the Nile predictably because it's the only one of the few rivers in the world that rises in the south and flows northward. And it flows into the Mediterranean Sea in this massive, massive delta uh, or, um, where it empties in uh, to, the, to the sea. There are major cities on that delta and anything, everything. And as it, each year it floods, it just deposits tons and tons and tons of rich, productive soil. So the Nile is the lifeblood of Egypt. And so God says, Moses, I'm giving you authority. You dip a bucket into the Nile and then pour it out in the ground. It'll become blood. I'm giving you power over the lifeblood of Egypt. And as you will see, and you probably already know this, that several of the plagues that God sends to in effect, demonstrate his superior power to the Egyptians will involve the Nile. So you, you see, again, God is giving him an extraordinary level of authority because Moses is still doubting. Now, Lord, if I just go and tell them Yahweh sent me, they're not going to believe me. Anybody can say that. Lord, don't you think... Did you say that? They're going to say, oh, the Lord never was with you. Who are you? You know, I'm, just, I'm trying to make this up. You can hear people saying that. <clears throat> so God says, okay, I understand. I'm going to give you three confirmatory signs. They're very powerful. Now, at this point, you would be really, really ready to go. Not yet. Moses has two more excuses. Jim, on on this, I mean, he didn't actually do it then. And so is he building... I mean, at this point? Yeah. Okay. So is he building uh, his faith? I mean, if he told us around this table, okay, you guys, uh, anyone, you know, just go ahead and take take a, um, whatever this was, a cup, and then pour it on, on the ground, a cup of water from the Nile, it on the ground, and it's going to turn in the blood. I mean, we could sit around this table and say, okay, who's going to do that? Um, I think all of us would start backing up a little bit, but it was just a promise. It wasn't demonstrated. In this case, the other two signs, Moses actually executed them, and God responded in the way he said he would, but you're correct that this time there's not <coughs> the evidence, because God says, if they do, then this is, there's no evidence he did at this point. So he isn't he building his I think so. faith? Or I think so. More? I mean, are you willing to trust thing. me enough to do what I'm going to ask you to do when the time comes? Yeah, that's that's right. Moses' faith is being grown, being built, but uh, it's still not maturing because we have two more excuses, as you know. <clears throat> All right, the fourth one, and is in verse 11, 10 and 11, and so on. And it, I, in terms of the questions I was posing as we gave this, is what can I say? Uh, Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. It's like, pardon me, Lord, now just a minute. Now look, a lot of things you've been telling, but I want to remind you of something. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. This is, it's very difficult to translate that from the Hebrew. Certainly what he is saying, I mean, it's, at one level, it's a little difficult to believe Moses really believed this about himself. I mean, he was in the top court, best educational system. He he had responsibilities in Egypt, Stephen tells us in Acts 7. It's kind of hard to believe that he wasn't eloquent. And the language of this passage is not that he had a speech impediment. That's not the language. That he was tongue-tied, or he had a cleft palate, or something. Like that. That's not the language of this. Moses is speaking in a self-deprecating <coughs> way as an excuse. 
maybe he had a speech impediment, but the language of the end of verse 10 is not the language of a speech impediment. He's just saying, Lord, I'm not Franklin D. Roosevelt who can give an eloquent speech at the drop of a hat and have people absolutely convinced that everything I say, I'm going to do. You have no fear to fear, but fear itself. I mean, you know, I mean, regardless of your politics, you have to acknowledge Franklin Roosevelt was a great, eloquent speaker. Abraham Lincoln spent one year in formal education, one of the most eloquent, articulate speakers we've ever had. And re regardless of your opinion of Barack Obama, and I suspect in a conservative group like this, not very high, Barack Obama was an eloquent speaker. He really was. I love to hear him speak. The words he chose, he, he spent a lot of time. He was a good speaker. <clears throat> That's kind of what he's saying. And look at what God's response is. It's a very theological response. Who gave human beings their mouth? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or gives them, makes them blind? Okay, Moses, you're talking about physical conditions. You're talking about the physical characteristics, either in their fullness or if there's something wrong. Can't see, that kind of thing. If I'm sovereign and I'm the creator and my providence is real and you don't feel you're very eloquent, go! Go! Nonetheless, don't use that as an excuse. I will help you speak. I will teach you what to say. If you have lacking self-confidence and you're self-deprecating in your view of self, you don't have a very high self-image. You don't have a very significant self-worth, all of the things that the self-help books took about in 2017. And that's how you feel about yourself. Stop it. I don't believe that's true anyway, but stop it because I'll tell you what to speak and I'll give you the words to say. That should have stopped Moses in his track. All right, Lord, because remember, this is the I am. This is the sovereign Lord. What right do you have, Moses, to stand there and say, Lord, I can't do the speaking I'm not eloquent. I can't stand before Pharaoh and give an eloquent, well-thought-through, articulate speech. And God said, I'm only asking you to do one thing. Tell him, let my people go. You don't have to long discourse. You don't have to spend 27 hours preparing it and rehearsing it. Just tell him what I'm telling you to say, and I'll take it from there. Some ways this is chapters. Exactly. 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 I, I don't know if God ever does this, but I would believe by this time God had it up to here. <laughs> but Moses isn't done. Look at verse 13. But Moses said, pardon me, Lord. Now, by the way, it's really interesting. He doesn't use Yahweh there. Pardon me, Adonai. Please send someone else. <laughs> now I'm the. I think this is this. This would have been Jim Eklund. This is Jim Eklund. This is how Jim Eklund would respond to the Lord. <laughs> Next verse. Then Yahweh's anger burned against Moses. Now, <clears throat> don't misinterpret that. It's just saying what I just said. The Lord had it up to here. Because every one of his excuses, every one of his rationalizations, God forcefully answered. Because God never makes a mistake when he chooses someone. God never makes a mistake when he prepares someone. 
what frequently needs to occur is God has to convince that person that he can do what he's asking him to do. Then he says, Moses, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. And by the way, he is already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. No more room for negotiation. No more excuses. All right, Moses, I will do one more thing. Aaron, your brother, he's coming to you. He's going to be here in a couple minutes. He will speak. Now, that's because, as you will see in the narratives that follow, Moses and Aaron often speak together. And there are times when Aaron is speaking, and there are times when Moses just, I'll take it from here. Because Moses' confidence and certainty grows. So I look at this, that is God saying that he'll give him Aaron. I look at this as an act of the grace of God. I do. Graciously providing, all right, Moses, I'm so frustrated with you. I could zap you with a lightning bolt right now, but I understand. I'm going to give you Aaron. He will go with you. He will speak for you. He will teach you. And I'll use you both. But you take the staff. You're going to do the miracles. Moses, Aaron will speak if you are a bit self-deprecating and lack self-confidence. But you've got to do the miracles. You have to do them. Next verse. Moses obeys. Let's look at it from another angle. Part of the grace of God also involved. Sometimes you need somebody else to go with you, to support you, to encourage you. And if God isn't enough... God will provide someone else that will speak, be the source of comfort and encouragement. And uh, that's got, got, God is deferring to those seeming inadequacies that Moses felt okay. When I became president uh, 24 years ago now, but the very first thing I did, because I felt very inadequate in taking that responsibility, I formed a group of men I called my errands group. My Aaron group consisted of five men, um, incredibly gifted guys. I sought them out, and they agreed to meet with me once a month for breakfast, and we spent 90 minutes just talking about issues, key issues, decisive issues, because when I became president of school, it wasn't really a mess, and you might have known it's really in a mess now, but I didn't have anything to do with those decisions. I don't support those decisions, but that's what the board has decided to do. But I wasn't involved in that. But that's beside the point. But I recognized something that I don't think Moses at first recognized. And I recognized my total, thorough inadequacy to do what God was asking me to do. And so to surround yourself with individuals who can help you do what God is asking you to do, I think is a sign of not a humility, but a sign of dependence on the Lord. And so these men became inestimable in their value in my life. I called on my Aaron group because Moses seemed to need an Aaron, and Aaron was that immensely helpful complement to what God was asking him to do. And I would suggest that many of you, in whatever God is asking you to do, don't be afraid to gather a couple Aaron's around you. They could be good gifts from the Lord. No, I mean, don't flippantly, impulsively choose people, but we all need errands, I think. And it, it took 
It took Moses making all of these excuses, send somebody else, to finally come to, okay, God, you are going to provide. And seemingly, it seems that way from the way the text is presenting it, that God (coughs) providing Aaron in this sense was satisfactory for Moses. It gave him that final needed push, if you will, and self-confidence. Okay, I can do what you're asking me to do, God, and I'll do it. And so that's the next section. We start to see the beginning of the preparation for the Exodus, as we'll get into uh, next week. I saw a hand. I think I did. Yes. Or John? Go ahead. Yeah. I, your second point was exactly kind of what I was going <clears> to <throat> um, It was <clears throat> when God provided someone else, Aaron, to kind of <clears throat> uh, cover uh, Moses' back. Then he felt that he could probably was in a position if if he didn't know something himself, he had someone to fall back on. Yeah. So that was I wouldn't call it a ploy or anything, but that was kind of what persuaded mm-hmm. Moses. And I don't recall <clears throat> most of the time it was Moses who was talking to Pharaoh, wasn't awesome. it? I, I don't know that. I you will Aaron. see. You will see Aaron. But you, you, you're right. By the time the really intense confrontation. And Sue's, it's Moses. Moses is on the front line. But when he was leading the people out, often it was Aaron, Aaron mm-hmm. that was... And in the initial, we'll yeah. see that next week, yeah. Aaron, yeah. But God is doing that graciously as a means to the end. That end is building the self-confidence of, of Moses. It's really remarkable because you think of all Moses had done and everything God had prepared him, he still didn't feel like he could do it. <clears throat> okay, is there another hand? Okay, I thought I saw one on my... Yeah, please. So, is this the development of the humility of Moses then, or is that to come yet? Well, I, God, that, uh, that's a great question. God continues to develop Moses in both, I mean, the, the needed humility, but also the self-confidence. Mm-hmm. And they're not opposites. They often are flip sides of the same coin. Because the true humility that honors the Lord is a humility that acknowledges our utter our need for utter dependence on the Lord. And that's what's frustrating, I think, when you study what we've just studied, all of these excuses that Moses is offering. Because what Moses, in effect, saying is this, that you promised to go with me isn't enough. I mean, that's, in effect, what he's saying. You, the very first thing God said is, I will be with you. And as Moses makes these excuses, in effect, what he's saying, that's not enough. That's not enough for me, Lord. Think about that. That's arrogance, but it's also a lack of faith. And so God slowly, patiently, just like he works with you and me, slowly but patiently brings him along. And finally and magnanimously defers. Okay, Moses, here's Aaron. But I'm not going to do anything more now. Here's Aaron. And that was presumably from the way the text shifts to the next section. As Moses goes back to Egypt, he was convinced. Okay, I'm ready. So when I've preached this, I've always used examples in life of how you and I make excuses to God. Because Jesus said, the very last one of the very last things Jesus said before he went back to the Father is, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And I, and I suspect many of you, in effect say, that's not enough, Lord. We don't mean it that way exactly, but we, in effect, were saying, that's not enough. But that's our, that's our small faith, and God's in the business of growing our faith. And we have to trust. I struggle. I struggle with so many things in the sense that I trust God. I believe God. I believe he always has my best sense. And I believe he can always work things out to his greater glory. Let's pray. Lord, we're like Moses. We really are. When you say to us, I will go with you, often, quite honestly, and I mean that in speaking for myself, Sometimes the way I act or respond, I just say, Lord, that's not enough. 
your promise to go with me. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. What Jesus said, I often, Lord, that's not enough. It is enough. And one of the wondrous things of your patience with us is you're just teaching us that when you say, I will go with you, that is enough. But in your grace, you provide. You give us all of the confirming things that you shared with Moses and even condescending and giving him Aaron. That apparently was sufficient. And uh, he then uh, was able to go forward and trusting that what you had said, both in terms of who you are, the great I am, the confirmatory signs, and that you would give him the words to say, and then you gave him Aaron, he was ready to do what you had been preparing him to do for 80 years. And I think that's often what is, is part of what's uh, going on in each one of our lives. We're always in a mode of preparation. You're always preparing us for something else, moving us along for something else that you want us to do for your name, in your name, and for your glory. So whatever those things might be, small little things or big humongous things, we always want to feel our sense of adequacy in you and what you are doing in us and through us to the glory of your name. So bless these men as they go their separate ways. Take care of us even as we drive around the city here. And I ask your blessing on each one of them to represent you well in Christ's name. Amen.